You could make an argument that the most important state government election this year didn't take place at the ballot box, but rather in the chambers of the Missouri House. That's where Republicans picked the next House Speaker. After a months-long shadow campaign, House Speaker pro tem Elijah Har emerged victorious over two other GOP possibilities. And barring a titanic collapse of Republican fortunes next year, the Springfield Republican will succeed House Speaker Todd Richardson in 2019. Todd's still a speaker, so I'm going to work with him as pro tem, but um, obviously I'm very excited, very appreciative to the caucus members that, that, that voted for me. There's a reason why Har's ascension to the speakership is so significant. After January 2019, Har will wield enormous power over legislation. He'll also be the public face for a GOP caucus that will make most of the vital policy decisions in Jefferson City. During a press availability with Capitol reporters, Har wouldn't say what his big priorities would be, mainly because the pressing issues in 2019 may be different from what's top of mind now. But he stressed that his leadership style will be similar to how Richardson has run the House. You know, there's going to be there's going to be some small differences, but first and foremost, Todd is going to leave very large shoes to fill. He is. Um, is respected on our studies as in the other, on, uh, in the Senate, the governor's office. Um, so, you know, if I can be the speaker, if I can be uh, as, as successful as Todd Richardson, I'm going to be very, very excited. So on the latest edition of Politically Speaking, Har joins us to talk about his future leadership post and what the General Assembly will work on while he waits to take the speaker's gavel. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Reitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor. And I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast, the only show about Missouri politics featuring a host that refuses to write with a pencil. <laughs> I am that host, the interim politics editor, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in studio in St. Louis is... Colleague Joe Manis, who likes writing with pencils. I, I said that because I was literally looking at Joe holding a <laughs> pencil. And joining us from KSMU Studios in beautiful Springfield, Missouri, we have as our very special guest for today. Elijah Har, state legislature, um, 134th district, and spent last night trying to teach my son how to use a pencil without breaking it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, mine just broke, so maybe you can show me some skills. <laughs> One of the reasons we're having you back on, and we had uh, Representative Har on the show, I think, last year or the year before. It was two years ago. That... It was during the uh, SJR 39 debate. It, it was. It seems like a million years ago at this point. <laughs> um, you actually just won what many would consider the most important state-based election in Missouri this year, and that is the shadow election to become the House Speaker designee. And I, I sort of explained that process at the beginning of the show. But um, you ran against two other Republicans. This has traditionally happened in the year before an election. It, I think it started around 2007 with uh, then-House Speaker Jetton wanting to get leadership fights out of the way so they don't become a distraction during election years. That's pretty much continued since. There have been a couple of instances where there have been contested races. Others have kind of been non-contested because the majority leader has traditionally ascended to the speakership. This was a situation where the majority leader could not run for the speakership because he was terming out of office 
which kind of led to a more open race than usual. Um, even though this was kind of an insular behind the scenes fight, I'd be interested to hear how someone runs for Speaker of the House and what it kind of takes to actually win, as you did a few weeks ago. So the process, uh, it's like an internal election for anything. We traditionally do those after the, the day after the November elections. We all go up to caucus in Jefferson City. And, and you're correct. We started this process roughly 10 years ago um, when the Democrats lost the majority. We watched as as they were having problems with that. Their their candidates for speaker were were traveling to visit the individual members and ask them for support. Um, and, and so if you're in a tough race and you're having to take an hour off the campaign trail to meet with somebody that, that wants your support if you win the race, um, you're not all polling in the same direction. So they instituted that about 10 years ago. And, and the way the process traditionally works, um, obviously there's a lot of conjecture about who's going to run and, you know, who, who will and won't get in. But after the legislative session ends in May, um, and sometimes even before the session ends, traditionally you will start telling people verbally or in writing that you, you plan to be a candidate for that. Once session ends in May, um, the campaign begins in earnest. And really, it's, it's kind of an old-fashioned retail campaign. Just like you go knock on doors when you're running for state representative, um, you have a much larger geographical area and a much smaller group of voters. But you, the, the, the tradition is you travel around the state, you try to sit down in every, every district and with every rep that's in the caucus and, and lay out the case to them about um, your plan for the future, um, your plan for the next campaign, um, how you see them fitting into that plan, and, and, and try to convince them why you believe um, you're the, the, the best person to lead the, the caucus. Now, what makes it interesting is because you're doing this a year and a half out, um, some of the people that we were talking to are people that will term out of office. And so they won't even be around to 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 be here under the next speaker. And so um, those people, their vote is 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 truly without belief about, you know, where they're going to fit in in the process. It's just who they believe will be the, the best person to lead the caucus after they're gone. Um, then. The day before the veto session, we get together in a caucus. Uh, the chief clerk of the House comes, and he we have a very close ballot system. Um, he hands out ballots. Everybody gets uh, a vote. Um, each candidate gets to designate someone to count the votes for them. And so the chief clerk and each of the counters go back into a back room, and they go through each of the votes, and they each have to agree on the count, and then they come out. Um, we have an internal rule that requires you to get at least 50 percent plus one of the entire caucus, whether or not people show up. And if people don't show up, they can't vote absentee or by proxy. And so um, you have to you have to get a majority of the entire caucus as it exists. Um, and so that's that's kind of the process that you go through to 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 become the speaker in waiting. Is the actual vote final vote count like a deep, dark secret or can you reveal on the show what the final count was? So I don't know formally or informally what the tradition is. Um, someone who counted the votes did did tell the at least a couple of media sources what the numbers were. So I don't think it's a secret. The final vote was sixty six to thirty three to eight. Okay, so you won on the first ballot. Basically. Yes, it was it was a one ballot race. That's correct. So, which is an impressive thing, given that there were three candidates and there was a possibility in that type of scenario that. One candidate doesn't get enough, they drop out, and then it becomes a one-on-one -on -one race, hypothetically. But um, I, I guess more generally, and I'm I'm really appreciative of you explaining the process, because I don't think that's a well-known thing, even with well-versed people in Missouri politics. What prompts somebody to even run for this office? And that might seem like an obvious question, since the speaker is a very powerful 
part of the legislative process, but it can also be a very time-consuming and taxing responsibility, both on your personal life, your family, but also just as a legislator, since so many people are going to want a piece of you, essentially. So I, I'm curious, like, what prompted you to do this, knowing the the, the pitfalls that, that come with the job? You know, um, here's here's the thing. We, we go up to the legislative session January through May. And so whether you're the speaker or you're a first-year state representative, it's going to be a major time commitment. Now, I, I will agree with you that being speaker is obviously significantly more, but in, in my opinion, once you've once you've made the decision to put aside that much time to 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 do this, um, it, it doesn't make sense um, to say, well, I, I would just continue to do the bare minimum in the job. I think most everybody, when they are reaching the 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 the, the second half of their legislative career, the second half of that eight years, they're going to want to have as much impact as they can since they're already putting aside a major part of their life to be there. And whether it's in a major chairmanship role, whether it's in a leadership position, whether it's carrying one signature piece of legislation, I think most everybody in their junior and senior terms say, they kind of find the niche that they want to be and say, I want to put all my time into this. And so, you know, um, it's it's a my second term in the building, I got the opportunity to chair a, a, a pretty major committee, and so we got to see a lot of big bills go through there. And it was at that point that, that you kind of say, I don't want to just be up here and do the bare minimum. I want to do my best to have the, the, the impact I can while I'm, while I'm setting this time aside. And so um, I decided to run for a leadership position, and then once I was able to, to win that um, as pro tem, you're the number two person in the House. You, you almost shadow the speaker daily on everything. Um, you, you take his place in the dais when he isn't up there. You, you're in the leadership negotiations with the Senate and the governor. Um, it, it, it's almost, um, and traditionally before the full leader ascended, it was, it was kind of the, the proving grounds to being the next speaker. And so once I served a year as, as pro tem, it was something I, I, I knew that I was very interested in doing. Well, at this point, are there particular goals that you have as when you become speaker, or is it too early to, um, to say? Well, I'll answer that two ways. The, the first thing, and a lot of people ask, you know, what, what are your priorities when you're the speaker? And I always say, you know, we have another legislative year under the current speaker, Todd Richardson. Um, and so I don't know yet what we will accomplish during that year. And so it, it kind of remains to be seen what things are left to move on to. But I have I, I have some ideas on where I think we will go. You know, we spent our first year, we did um, some tort reform. We did a lot of, we did right to work. We obviously did the transportation network companies bill. So we had some major legislative successes, but I know, you know, the House passed several things that the Senate didn't get to. Um, prevailing wage and paycheck protection are obviously two things that I think will very likely be on the legislative agenda for next year. So um, I, I would not be surprised if those those battles happen next year. And so what I've told a lot of people is um, I can generally tell them what I would like to do during the time I was speaker and will just remains to be seen. I would say the most the most likely things that will come up during the 2019 legislative session um, I, I think the transportation reform package and utility reform are very likely to be seen in 2019 because 2018 is an election year and traditionally we'll have more red meat issues that will take center stage in election year. So uh, fights over abortion and guns and taxes and, and labor reform and tort reform, you will see a lot of that in the 2018 season. Issues like utility reform, which is not something that traditionally motivates people to go to the polls, um, is probably something that, that, that 
it's unlikely to have the time that it would take in the next legislative year to get done. And so I, I'm already kind of circling 2019 as a year where I think that will be a major issue. I think pretty much everybody agrees that Missouri's road system needs more money for repairs and improvements. Just there's not an agreement over what the, the funding mechanism is. Like some of the more conservative members want to cut money out of the budget and redirect it towards transportation. Others want to raise certain taxes. And and none of these ideas seem to have consensus, which is probably why 2019 seems like a more logical year than 2018 for such a, a difficult issue. Do you have any kind of concepts or, or at least baseline of what you would want to see on that? Or is it too early to tell because we don't even know who the people are going to be in 2019 they are going to be in the legislature. So partially, I think it's it's too early to tell but because we don't know who will be here. But more importantly, there are, there are at least two different task force that are traveling around the state taking information and, and going to make recommendations. Kevin Corlew's got one that he is um, heading up. And then the, the House Policy Caucus, um, led by Jeff Messenger, is also looking at that issue. And so um, there's at least two groups in the House that have been traveling around the state, taking public testimony and trying to come up with a recommendation. And then I believe there's at least one or two people in the Senate that are working on potential plans. And so my expectation is we will see three or four plans in the next year that get discussed in some significant depth. And then as we kind of circle 2019 as a likely year to, to, to get that done, I think we'll, we'll start to narrow that focus down and figure out which of those plans has the best opportunity to move forward. Shifting to 2018, because as I've, I've told a couple of our other most more recent guests, it's actually not that far away. It's like less than three months when everybody comes back. Um, you mentioned labor-related issues, and Joe may have to correct me on this particular point, but one of the things that I heard is a possibility is that the legislature may pass something to make sure that the likely referendum on right to work is moved to August as opposed to November. Have you heard anything? And Joe, is that a possibility, first yes, of all? Yes, but they have to do it early in the session because of the timeline. Uh I'd be interested in and what the representative has heard about this. You know, I, I, I mean, just candidly, that that's not something that I've heard a, a lot of discussion about. But I think as the session gets closer and we start looking at how the 2018 elections are going to be, um, I, I assume that's a conversation that will begin in, in, in earnest. It, it's, it's a difficult decision for Republicans in the legislature to make. If you put it in August, it's not going to be the turnout mechanism for Democrats that it could potentially be in November. But if you put it in August and that's the only major ballot initiative that goes on in August, which is not a sure thing because the governor could put other things there, you run the risk of it, the referendum succeeding in overturning right to work. So it's not necessarily a decision without risk, but especially for Republicans that are worried about lots and lots of organized labor people turning out in force in November, it seems like a possibility just from that, you know, back of the napkin political calculus. And I'm not sure if that's something that's come through your mind. You but. know, and I think take take the politics out of it. Um, you know, we're going to have an incredibly contentious U.S. Senate campaign in November. Um, all the congressionals in the state, all the House legislators in the state, uh, uh, half the state Senate is going to be up for, for re-election in November. And so, um, you know, right to work is one of those pivotal issues for the state of Missouri. And so, 
frankly, I think um, personally, I think it's better on an August ballot. And the reason I think that is because even though you will have some primaries in the state, the vast majority of the races in the state, the, the big race will be in November. And so I think an issue that big that gets lost in the barrage of millions and tens of millions of dollars being spent in a Senate race, millions of dollars being spent in an auditor's race, all these other legislative and Senate races, you, you, you lose the chance to have a really frank conversation with the voters of Missouri about how we want to move forward on labor issues. And so just from a philosophical standpoint, from the opportunity for the, the voters of Missouri to really get into the, that issue, and, and make that determination. I think there's a lot of value in having that debate on the August ballot. Now, I've heard some talk, though, that there might be some concern that either a lot of uh, labor people take a Republican ballot or whatever. Some uh, there is. I've heard some talk that there's concern that if it's on the August ballot, it could affect the Republican U.S. Senate primary, uh, that the Holly backers want to make sure that there isn't something, I mean, that there isn't a situation where he possibly could lose because of um, a different type of electorate taking uh, Republican ballots. Have you heard anything like that? I, I, I haven't. And, and frankly, I think that concern's unfounded for, for two reasons. One, we don't even know yet who the, the who will end up being in that U.S. Senate primary. Um, if it as it stands today and, and no disrespect to um, Austin Peterson or Tony Minetti or the, the other candidates that are thinking of running or Cortland Sykes, I think Josh Hawley is far and away the favorite in that primary as it stands today. And I don't think anything's going to change that. Secondly, historically, by by polling, if you believe it, 40 percent of union members are Republican members. They, they pull a Republican ballot regardless. And so I don't I don't think that the shift would be so substantial that would really change any races. What about if Leonard Steinman gets in the Republican primary? That is the game changer, frankly. That that could oh. that could just change everything. He, he actually announced a couple days ago he's running as an independent. But one thing in particular I wanted to ask you that was brought up by Representative Justin Offerman about two or three weeks ago is he says there might be a push from the Republicans that control the legislature to impose campaign donation limits on local candidates. Now, for people that listen to the show, this is an issue that I've been bringing up for well over a year. Amendment 2 placed limits on statewide candidates, judicial candidates, and state legislative candidates, but it did not place limits on candidates for county commissioners, mayors, or other local offices. With And there's some exceptions out there, like St. Louis and Kansas City have donation limits, but they're higher than the Amendment 2 limits. Well, because they were put up by their local. So... I, I was I'm just curious as someone who is still in leadership now, is there going to be a serious consideration to do that? And if so, what is kind of the reason for doing it? You know, I, if I had to guess, and I don't want to conjecture wise, I, I think the likely reason for doing that is trying to maintain some sort of stable across the line baseline that everybody has to follow. Um, but I, I, I mean, candidly and. This probably is politically unpopular, but um, I don't believe that Amendment 2 is is going to be very effective, if effective at all, in controlling or preventing money from being in politics. Money will be in politics 
no matter what the, the, the various rules are that are on it. And I think that's something that we've seen with the rise of a variety of different PAC groups that have been registered this year, both on the, on the lobbying side, on the corporate side, and on the candidate side, that money's going to come in. And so we, we, could, we could try to, um, to, to, to go take that to the local county candidates and say, yes, we're going to require you to be under the same laws that, that the legislature and the statewides have to follow. Um, but whether or not we do that, the money, there will be as much money in local races as there in, is in local races now, just like there will probably be as much money in state national races as there are in state national races now. Do you think that other ethics-related things that have passed the House in the last couple of years, like uh, curtailing lobbyist gifts or making the quote-unquote revolving door ban longer, are going to be priorities next year? It is Todd Richardson's last year in the legislature. These have been major priorities for him. They've often passed the House very quickly, only to die like a fiery death in the Senate. Um, what do you think the prognosis are are for those types of issues? You know, I think the House has been pretty consistent under under Speaker Richardson about where it be, and I, I don't see any reason that changes next year. Um, my sense is we will, again, likely pass a ban on, on um, lobbyist gifts. Um, I, I don't know what other ethics things, um, other ethics-related legislation will be filed um, because we have in the past, we have done some updates to PFDs. We added a six-month revolving door um, ban. Um, and then more than anything, you know, under Speaker Richardson, what we've done, we've instituted a, a very significant process for um, claims of sexual harassment in the in the Capitol. Um, they require legislators to attend um, training, um, legislators, staff, pretty much anybody that works in the Capitol has to attend training, a, a variety of different things that, that, that Speaker Richardson put into place to try to improve not just the culture in the Capitol, but more so the appearance of, of the Capitol. Um, and, and frankly, in my opinion, he's done a great job of that. I, I think um, you know, that's one of the things I always say is that um, I would like my kids are young. My kids are really young. But um, my oldest uh, my my oldest daughter is four. And um, I always joke about, you know, in 20 years if she wanted to work in the Capitol. Um, I would like to believe that the, the the changes that we have done over the past few years would make it such that she would she would have an excellent opportunity that she'd be treated as an equal by everybody else. That's more of a cultural change than it is a, a rule change that you can do. But I believe that cultural change has 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 happened significantly, even in the few years that I've been in the building. And, you know, my my legislative assistants work in the building for 20 years speaks about how it used to be and how it is now in, in terms of it's almost unrecognizable the, the amount of changes that have taken place there. So, um, I mean, there, there are still, you know, fundraising events during veto session and some of the other stuff. So are you talking about how women are treated, just the general uh, climate of civility? Uh, I'm, I'm just interested if there's things that have been particularly noticeable to you, um, let's say, since the whole uproar that um, resulted in then Speaker John Deal having to step down. Yeah, I, I, I think there I, I think the the legislature and the Capitol as a whole have 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 taken that issue very seriously in the past two years. Um, the issue of, of of how it how we are perceived by the people. We do the people's business. It's a serious job that we do and we want them to know that we take it seriously and that anybody that that works in the building will be treated fairly and equally. And I, I think that has been one of the, the things internally that Speaker Richardson has worked hardest on, I think he's been most successful on. on. Another issue that kind of 
came up after session is tax credits. And, and the reason why it came up, I think, after uh, the legislative session is there was this report to make a number of major changes to uh, the, the tax credit system in Missouri. So that includes the historic preservation tax credits that's used often to rehab uh, older buildings, the low-income housing tax credit that's used as an impetus to develop low-income housing. I believe that you were you were a member of the commission that came up with that report. Is that correct? I was. I was one of there was three House members, three Senate members, and then several appointees from the governor. I was one of the House members on that tax policy committee. So I'm curious about whether overhauling tax credits is going to be something that happens in 2018, or whether it's a 2019 sort of project. Because as I'm sure you and I both know. Touching some of these tax credits and, and making reductions to it is often very controversial. There's a host of interest groups that want to protect some of these tax credits at all costs. But there's also this feeling among many Republicans, especially as we just went through a, a pretty difficult budget year, that now may be the time to take a look at some of these incentives and and start the process of, of winning, winning, winnowing them down. I'm curious to get your perspective on that. So this is my recollection is this is the third committee that has been convened in the interim to look at the tax credit system in Missouri. Um, and, and the committee's recommendations were, were fairly drastic on, on some of these. Um, now, looking forward, what do I believe is, is gettable in the legislature and, and, and more so in the Senate than anything? Um, I believe that that there's a couple different possibilities. I, I think both in the historics and in the low income that we could do some significant reductions in the caps on both of those programs. Um, elimination is probably something that I don't think can get through the Senate at this point. And I think the other thing that you have to be careful of is, and one of the things I insisted on when I was on the Tax Policy Committee, is that any recommendations and any legislation that we pass, in my opinion, should be revenue neutral. That we should marry any reductions in tax credits with some sort of broad-based tax relief to, to Missourians. Um, what I don't want to do is just turn this into a way that we can just find more ways to spend more money. That's, that's not what I would consider the, the proper goal of that committee. But again, looking looking at the Senate and looking at what, what is doable, I believe it is doable to do some reductions in both the historic and the low-income programs. I don't know that it's doable to eliminate those programs at this point. Eliminating them would probably be a tall order because, as I mentioned before, the reason why there are a lot of groups that are going to fight hard to keep them is there is evidence that those incentives have actually done pretty good things in respective communities. But there's also the counter argument that neither one of those incentives are very efficient. And I think that's one of the points that the Tax Credit Commission ended up making and why there was a number of suggestions for, as you as you mentioned accurately, drastically restructuring them. So is that basically going to be part of the debate, the, the need to, to make sure that the incentives are in place, but trying to figure out a way either to lower the caps or make them more efficient. And to make sure that everybody has an equal opportunity to to use these tax credits, to apply for these tax credits, so that we don't have um, one or two people using all of them, but we, we, we have an open and fair process that, that anybody that wants to use them has the opportunity to apply for them. Um, I do want to ask a question about the person that you'll be succeeding as House Speaker. He announced that he was not going to run for state auditor, and his political future... And I'm talking about Todd Richardson, by the way. I don't think I actually mentioned who your successor is going to be. Um, he's 
probably not going to be running for any office in 2018. I think there's still some speculation about whether he might run for something in the future or whether he might just end his speakership, go back to Poplar Bluff and coach the Poplar Bluff High School uh, football team or something like that. And that's a joke, by the way. Yeah, he's a lawyer. <laughs> he, he, he could also go into law. What, what do you think the future holds for Todd Richardson? Because I think that even Democrats concede that he has immense political skills. He's been fair to people that don't necessarily agree with the caucus. And as you, you mentioned, after this very tumultuous time with John Deal, it does seem like he has changed the environment in a positive direction. So where do you think his his political future is, or does he not have a political future after 2019? You know, I, John Todd Richardson is too talented not to end up back in the political space at some point. Um, and I think, you know, Todd's one of those unique individuals that when he got out of the auditor's race, I did not have a bunch of people calling me and saying, oh, is there a scandal? Can he not raise the money? Does he not think he can win? Everybody assume that if Todd got out of the race, it's because Todd did. Todd personally just did not want to do the job or did not believe that that was the right play for him and his family. And that's he he is one of the unique individuals that inspires respect on both sides of the aisle from um, and in, in all parts of the caucus, um, whether you're part of the Apple Pie Caucus or the Conservative Caucus. Um, he, he is well liked. People trust him and believe in him. And so I, I think he's his capabilities are such that he will be in the political sphere at some place. And I don't know if that is a 2020 statewide campaign. Um, there's always the possibility that that if the attorney general were to be successful in the Senate campaign, Todd's obviously a very successful attorney and would make a great appointee to that position. Um, Todd, Todd will be back in the political space at some point. He's just too talented not to be. Um, going to the auditor's race, which is probably not going to get as much attention as the U.S. Senate race. But right now, David Wassinger, an attorney from the St. Louis area, is in. There's a lot of rumors that your colleague, State Representative Paul Kurtman, might enter that soon. Somebody pointed out on Twitter that this race could actually have some more long-term significance than the U.S. Senate race in the sense that the incumbent, Nicole Galloway, is seen by many as a potential gubernatorial or Senate candidate. And as I pointed out before, if this initiative passes that's called Clean Missouri that changes the redistricting process, the state auditor would play a pretty big role in selecting the demographer that ends up drawing the state legislative lines. So I guess my question for you as somebody who is going to be getting the vote out for Republican candidates, primarily for the House, is there some cognizant cognizance on the part of the Republicans that this uh, auditor's race does hold a lot of future significance and might require someone like you to also help with that to make sure the Republican nominee is successful. Well, I don't think anybody will say that the auditor's race is not significant. If you look, I mean, Claire McCaskill was the auditor and we've seen, you know, how that, where her career trajectory has gone from there. So I think everybody is very aware of how um, important that position is. Um, I, I've met Nicole and I've gotten to hear her um, speak and she's, she's impressive, but you know, it's important to remember that she has never gone through a, a political campaign. She was appointed a local auditor. Now she was appointed to this this position. So I believe that there's a lot of opportunities for the Republicans, and especially one who's been through a campaign, to, to win that position. 
Um, you are right. Uh, David Wassinger is in the race, and I've only briefly had the opportunity to meet him. But um, you know, people I know have a lot of good things to say about him. Um, Paul Kurtman did file paperwork this week that he is he is going to be um, a candidate for auditor. He at least filed his uh, changed his his committee registration to to reflect that. Um, I will say Paul is is a very dynamic individual. Um, he's he's a, a well liked member of our caucus, and he's he's one that he. Um, it is hard to find many people in the legislature that give a better speech than Paul Kerman. He's very talented in that regard, and I think he would make an excellent nominee um, if he is the one that, that that wins that primary next August. Again, we've got a we've got a couple months until filing actually opens, so there's possible that other candidates will get in the race. But I think um, I think if either David or Paul are the nominee, I think we've got an excellent opportunity to win that win that campaign. And and frankly, you know, in the last campaign. We took every statewide race that 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 we were in. The only two remaining positions statewide that the Republicans do not currently hold are both on the ballot next year, and their auditor and the U.S. senator. And I think for the Republican Party, that is a big priority to try to make this state all red finally. For for the U.S. Senate race, which again you may play a tangential role, but by trying to make sure that the House races go well for the Republicans, which would in turn help the eventual Republican nominee against Claire McCaskill. Um, since Attorney General Josh Hawley announced that he was going to run, I think, as you mentioned, there is kind of this conventional wisdom that he's probably the favorite in that primary, barring either another candidate getting in or one of the other candidates like Austin Peterson or, you know, Leonard Steinman catching fire or something like that. Um Let's say Josh Hawley does win that primary. How do you think that he is going to be able to handle a race against a candidate like Claire McCaskill, who is very adept in retail politics, has won some very tough campaigns in the past, and could potentially benefit if the president's approval ratings are not as high in Missouri as they were during the uh, election last year? So here's the thing, and I, I will taking nothing away from Senator McCaskill because she is a very, very talented politician. But Senator McCaskill run re-election not because she ran an excellent campaign, but because the Republican nominee um, five years ago imploded. Um, he he made comments that that you can't make, um, and and he because of that um, lost the support of of a lot of the Republican voters he was unable to raise any sort of money and so she essentially faced a wounded nominee that that a lot of the Republican Party was rejecting at the time Josh Hawley is not that person Josh Hawley will not make those type of mistakes Josh Hawley will will have equal f- whatever fundraising that Senator McCaskill does Josh Hawley will be able to raise the same it would not surprise me if if this next Senate campaign breaks the uh, record for, for the most expensive Senate campaign in Missouri that, that Senator Blunt and Jason Kander broke last year, um, it will be a titanic battle. And, and, and there is no denying that the state has trended red over the past few years. Um, you know, I think the highest pred- prediction I heard last year was that Trump would win the state by maybe double digits, and he ended up winning the state by 19 points. Whether or not his popularity is in the stratosphere or not, I, I don't think there's any doubt that Repub- or that Missouri has trended strongly towards the Republican Party. And if you have uh, a young, telegenic, energetic candidate like Josh Hawley who um, can, can raise the, the same type of money that, that Senator McCaskill can raise with the trajectory of Missouri, I I mean, even polling right now has him already three points ahead, and he only won his first political office last year. Senator McCaskill, who's 
who's been a statewide candidate three three times now, or, or more than that, actually. Um, I, I think that, that Josh has a much higher ceiling than Senator McCaskill does. Um, and, and if I were to pick a, a fronter right now, I would actually say that, that I would pick Senator McCaskill as the underdog and, and that the current attorney general begins this race as a front runner. Well, I mean, she might prefer that. But just looking at historically, what you were just saying about Missouri being you know, trending red is almost identical to what Ann Wagner said when she was head of the state party right after the 2004 election where the GOP snagged the governorship and uh, had really taken control of the General Assembly, both chambers, and they looked really strong. And you and I both know what happened in 2008 where the Democrats took um, every race but one. Uh, on the statewide ballot, and um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not advocating one way or the other. I, I'm just saying I've sure. seen the the uh, wind change like dramatically pretty quickly. Yes, That's and I, I would absolutely agree with that. But even looking at even the comparison of the 2016 and 2004 elections, we did win the governorship in 2004, but we uh, we squeaked into the lieutenant governor. I think we won one other statewide office. We lost a couple others. Our margins in the House and Senate were maybe in the 90s. Now our margins in the House is 117. We've won every statewide office last year. The 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 comparisons between 04 and, and 16, we start significantly further ahead as a party than we did where we were in 04. Okay, point taken. The, the, my last question for you, since you are, since I alluded to before, one of your main political responsibilities next year is to make sure that the House Republican majority is still at a high level. I think that there's been kind of a feeling for some time that there's going to come a year where Republicans can't win any more seats and they eventually lose a few. Now, the question becomes, you know, how many seats that they lose? Do they lose like one or two or do they lose like 10? Um, obviously, you're probably going to go into this wanting to win every seat, hypothetically. But at this point in time, which is very early in the in the election cycle and, and probably will change dramatically, what are kind of your expectations for how big of a majority you'll have when you're speaker? You know, uh... That's that's over a year away when the election is. It's a lifetime. And, and and I'm not trying to set the expectations low, but, you know, term limits first began in 2002. And so you look at the class of 2002, the class of 2010, and now the class of 2018, that term limit year, you have a very large number of open seats. So we've got about 116, 117 members in our caucus. We are going to have approximately 40 of those are seniors and they term out. So we will have more open seats than, than at any time since the 2010 elections. Um, and that with, so with that said, obviously we have the opportunity to, or the, the, the possibility that we take a step backwards. Now on the flip side of that, I believe that, um, the people that are in charge of the house Republican campaign committee, um, speaker Richardson and myself are all working very, very hard to make sure that we keep this, large majority that we have. And so a big part of that has been in early recruiting, identifying all of those seats that are going to be open and going into those areas and finding candidates that can win, because that's really what's helped us build our majority is finding people all over the state and districts that previously had seemed unwinnable or had never been won by a Republican and, and finding somebody that can hold that seat and turning that seat red, not just for that candidate, for, but for the for future 
uh, for future candidates. And if you look, you know, Lyndall Shoemake's seat uh, up in northern Missouri had never been held by a Republican before Lyndall Shoemake. And and now that's not even a seat, even though Lyndall's going to term out. I don't think that's a seat the Democrats will even be competitive in. Uh, Paul Fitzwater's seat, Potosi area, same way. He held parts of that seat, had never been represented by a Republican now. I don't think that seat is even a competitive seat now. And so um, we've got, obviously, we've got a lot of seats in suburban St. Louis, suburban uh, Kansas City, um, even going up in the St. Joe area that, that, that are going to be open and going to be battlegrounds. But I think that with early recruiting um, and, and with a, a well-organized effort, I'm, I'm very hopeful for where we'll be after the 2018 elections. We'll be talking with you soon, even before you, you take your, your uh, speakership. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And as we mentioned on the last time you were on the show, you have about 60 Twitter accounts. So I'm, we're going to spend the next 10 minutes of you listing them out right now. I, I actually only have two. There was a time I had third, but I retired one of them. Um, so my, my personal one is just Elijah Har. Um, but I, I've got a, 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 a one that's primarily used during the legislative session for people that, that want to follow what we do, which is um, support Elijah. Um, but those are the two Twitter accounts if you want to follow. So the one where you, the, the the one in in Espanol has been retired. So basically. a few years ago, uh, in fact, when I first ran for office, I, I met some people that said they had family members that only spoke Spanish, and and there was no real way for them to get news out of the capital. Um, because unless you have a Spanish radio station or, or newspaper or thing like that, they just they couldn't get anything. And so for for about a year or two, I tried to 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 keep up some. Uh, uh, an account where I only tweeted in Spanish, but you know I think I only had about 30 followers on that that account. And at some point, it just got to be um, more work than I felt like there was value in it, and so um, I that that account or that account has been retired. We will we will always fondly remember that account uh, <laughs> for 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 all times. And until next time, so long.